What is the most important chapter in the Old Testament? Today is our seventh study of our summer study on David, the King's Triumph series. Somehow, our text is 2 Samuel 7, and I'm so glad to coincide our study 7 with 2 Samuel 7, because 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. For Jewish people, 2 Samuel 7 has been the founding scripture of their hope throughout their turbulent history, meaning that anytime Jewish people were wondering about God and their safety, 2 Samuel 7 anchored their faith with a hope. Renowned American Old Testament theologian named Walter Brueggemann called this chapter the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. And I totally concur with Brueggemann because this chapter was quoted in the New Testament and reflected by so many early church fathers and all biblical theologians, they cite 2 Samuel 7 in their biblical meta-narratives. Here, we hear for the first time the most popular and important messianic title, Son of David. Not from David's mouth, but from God directly. So with that introduction, let us read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 17. After king was settled in his palace, and the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the house of a cedar, while ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. I don't want who, I don't want to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelite up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling place. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of a cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from the tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of a great man on earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed the leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you the rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish the house for you when your days are over and your rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
When he, go, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with the floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan replied to David all the words of this, his, this entire revelation. 2 Samuel 7 is a story about vision and revision. It is about an original vision of a David for God and overwhelming revision, revision of God over David's vision. The reason I frame this crucial chapter in terms of a vision is because this is my message to all young people including our Forest College freshmen, and especially my favorite third daughter. You know, uh, since last week, we've been doing a, this kind of a Father's Last Sermon series. So uh, Han gave a you know, message for, before Noah uh, left, and then next week will be the Voltaire will give a message for, uh, uh, for Sherry's. Today's my turn. You know, scripture says, without vision, people perish. In other words, vision is a driving force of a life. You know, if a life is a journey, most important thing about journey is not speed, but it's a direction. It's not about how fast you go, but where you go matters. Vision matters. Without vision, people perish. Somebody said, young man or young woman without vision is an old man and old woman waiting to be. I think it's so right. I believe what divides a young and old is not age, it's a vision. When you have a vision, your heart stays young. Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and stoic thinker, once said this, man's worth is no greater than his ambitions. By the way, Marcus Aurelius, this smart emperor, apparently confused about the vision and ambition. You know, vision and ambition are not the same thing. It's a different. What's the difference? Generally speaking, ambition is very individually oriented. But vision is bigger than oneself. Ambition is after my glory. Vision is more than my reputation. As you will see soon, vision is a positive flows from a beautiful heart, whereas ambition is a negative. It originates from one's insecurity and greed or need of self-promotion. And it is my prayer that everyone in forest community does not live after you know, ambition, does not live according to the social conventions and material convenience and the personal comfort, but according to spiritual, eternal conviction, the vision of God. Amen? Today's text teaches us this importance of a vision. So I'll give you the outline. So I'm going to talk about vision and revision and revelation. Okay, vision, revision, and revolution. Biblical vision, first of all, comes from gratitude. Let's find out what kind of gratitude David had, or when did he have? Verse 1, after king was settled in his palace, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Okay. The story happened after David settled in his palace. 
So far in the second Samuel, we've been seen, we have seen David's ascending success and the increasing stability. In chapter 2 and 4, we saw David won the civil war and unified his country patiently after seven and a half years. And then chapter uh, uh, 5, we saw David beat the arch enemy Philistine and conquered Jerusalem and then made a new capital. And then chapter 6, just one chapter before, we saw David made a Jerusalem a holy city by bringing an ark of God. So today, chapter 7, verse 1, the king was settled in his palace. This is not an overstatement. By the way, most scholars think that uh, today's story happened after the chapter 8, which describes other David's victories. Just for, you, you know, just as important side note, is the biblical writers, they're ancient historians. Ancient historians, they're the great storytellers. They are more than chronology. They want to communicate the meaning and the significance of the story. So they kind of use a timeline flexibly, okay? So when you read a Bible, don't read it like a modern history. We see this, this, you know, in the Bible, even New Testament. Do you guys remember? Gospel of John described the Jesus cleansing of temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, chapter 2 while the rest of the synoptic gospel describe at the end of his ministry or last week. That's a typical ancient, you know, uh, historian. They kind of, uh, you know, once again, they're more thematically oriented. Just like a good movie directors, you know, they've said that uh, three months ago or whatever, and then, you know, they kind of move you back and forth, whatever, to tell the story, right? Now, back to our study, our text. David was settled in his palace, and Bible says it was a result of God's given rest. And Hebrew word for rest is a sabbat. In God-given sabbat or rest, how was David doing? Yes, David was grateful, but guess what kind of gratitude David had? David's gratitude was restless. He had a restless gratitude. Instead of enjoying God's rest, David became an edgy, and uneasy about God's blessing of his rest. So in one word, David could not rest in God's rests or God-given rests. He had a restless gratitude. You know, when I, when I use the word restless and then, you know, fill in the blank, what would you put in there? Most of us will put you know, I actually Googled it, restlessness, just took restlessness and they clicked it. First thing came up was a young and restless. You know what that is? Okay, you're old. Anyway, young and restless, you know. So, restlessness, gratitude. Why? Look at the verse 2. David said, here I am living in the house of a Sirach, while ark of God remains in a tent. Sirah, by the way, is the most uh, luxurious building material back then. Israel didn't have a cedar tree. It is imported trees from uh, Tyre and Sidon. And uh, David, when he became a king, king of uh, Tyre, uh, you know, was so impressed with uh, David that, uh, you know, and then tried to be nice to David. So, you know, to create an alliance, he actually built a house for David free. That's a house of a cedar. 
of Lebanon. Cedar of Lebanon, that is a the luxurious building material in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And the, here is a paradoxical truth about God's love. When you truly experience God's love, you are more than happy and relieved. You will feel overwhelmed and restless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great German pastor and martyr, you know, explained this. He said, true grace is a costly grace. You know, grace by definition is a free gift. It's a free. You know, you don't have to pay for anything. But when you find out the cost of that grace, you feel obligated. You, feel, you know, you, you cannot just take for granted. You feel obligated to give something because the cost is so much. It's so The grace is so costly that it moves you. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about true grace as a costly grace. God gave David today so much rest that David is, has a restless gratitude. And I want to say this. This passage about the restless gratitude of David is a huge challenge for us because we are living in America and unknowingly we are affected, infected, influenced by this kind of so-called capitalistic worldliness and American pragmatic mentality and utilitarian mindset that most of us, we all, we seek sort of a minimum sacrifice to receive the maximum benefit. You know, we love to, you know, we, we love cost effectiveness, right? We pay least and get the most. That is a kind of mentality, all right? This is why some people like a thrifting, right? Yeah. Thrifting, yeah. I mean, you know, nothing wrong about thrifting. I, you know, actually save some money is a great thing. But uh, I have a problem with the thrifting mentality. When it comes to God and spiritual matter, you cannot thrift. There's no shortcut. When it comes to true love, you cannot, you cannot go the cost-effective way. That's not how God loved us. God paid the, the, the most, uh, most humongous price. You know, if somebody healed me from my common cold, I would be grateful. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, you know, I'll buy them a lunch or dinner or, you know, gift card. Yeah. But imagine, if I have, a, you know, heart trouble and I need a new, you know, heart transplant, and somebody gave me a heart to me, do you think uh, I'll be just grateful? I think when God loved us, he loved us so much that our heart does not just rest, but it becomes restless in different way. The person who exemplified this is a, great, uh, a British uh, missionary named C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was born, C.T. Studd was, do we have the picture of C.T.? Yeah. C.T. Studd was born in a wealthy British family, and while he was atten attending Eton Prep School, he received Christ. By the way, C.T. Studd was a great uh, cricket player. I don't know much about cricket player, but uh, 
Apparently, if you're a great cricket player in British Commonwealth, India, Pakistan, or wherever, you, you are the star. And he was a legendary cricket player that he went to uh, Cambridge University. He played for his country. It's like, uh, you know, being a superstar, super athlete. So when he graduated from Cambridge, he could easily pick and choose any career. He could go politics, he could go business, you name it. This is an elite athlete from rich family. Life is, it is a food. But guess what he decided to do? He joined the others, you know, seven, six friends called the Cambridge Seven and joined the China Inland Mission founded by Hudson Taylor, so-called the faith mission. They didn't rely on, they didn't require, ask other people to support. They just went in faith and then whoever knows them supported them. But right before he went, his father's, you know, inheritance came to him and he received the 29,000 pounds in the early 1900. And then in today's money, that's about close to $5 million. And guess what it did? Out of 29,000 pounds, he gave 5,000 pounds to Moody Bible Institute, 5,000 to George Mueller's orphanage, 5,000 to William Booth and Salvation Army, and another 10,000 for various relief missions for the poor, and he used that 3,000 pounds for his, his ministry. He served China. Later, he served several years in India. He ended up serving in Congo, Africa, and that's where he died. And he established a mission agency called WEC, W-E-C, Worldwide Evangelization for Christ. Even today, 1,800 missionaries are active. He gave it all. But you know what he said? One of his famous quotes is, if Jesus be God and die for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He said, if Jesus is God and he died for me, he sacrificed for me, I cannot call anything I do for him even a sacrifice. So another you know, famous quote from him is that uh, some people want to live within the sound of a church and the comfort of a church bell, but I want to run a rescue ship within a yard of a help. Everyone who received the gospel of Jesus Christ and recognized the gospel, this gospel, is a greater than universe. And the grace of God is a heavier than gravity. They all wrestle with the gratitude. Let me give you another example. In the New Testament, Romans 1.14, Paul said this, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. The word for, Greek word for the obligated simply is a debtor. So King James Bible actually translated better. So I'm a debtor, both to the Greeks and the barbarians. New Living Translation, you know, kind of explained this better. I mean, explained this way. He said, for I have a great sense of obligation to the people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated like. Do you know the extent of a so-called, the, 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 you know, living translation, the great sense of obligation? This is a global size of a restfulness. What Paul was saying here is that until everyone in the world 
knows the gospel of Jesus Christ, he cannot rest. That's what he was saying. So let me ask all of us, is our gratitude restless and wild? Or is our gratitude tamed and mild? You know, God loves me and did not spare any price to save me. And if you know the price that God paid for you, you you, we should recognize that I am the luckiest guy in this world. God loved me before the foundation of the universe. And then he made the universe, solar system, earth, and everything for us. I am more important than universe because Christ didn't die for universe. Christ died for me. Have you ever thought you are the luckiest guy? If you really understand the sacrifice of your Savior, we should feel I am the luckiest and richest and my life as it is is a success. I am. I am blessed. I am blessed. Amen? Now, David wanted to build a house for God because of this restlessness, you know, gratitude. And that's his vision for God. And, uh, but interesting thing is, if you look at the verse 2, David did not act on his vision right away, but he consulted with the prophet Nathan. Why? You know, last time in chapter 6, you know, do you guys remember David tried to bring an ark at the first time and the Uzzah, you know, touched irreverently and God struck him dead, you know? So David remembered the Uzzah incident. Oh, before that, I better tell you about a little bit of Nathan. This is the first time Prophet Nathan's name came to appear in the Bible. After Prophet Samuel died, David didn't have a spiritual mentor and guide. And finally, he found one, that is a Nathan. So, David learned that when you do good things, especially for God, don't just presume you need to ask God. You have to kind of work carefully. And uh, that's the, you know, you have to do the good work in the right way. And I love, I love the Nathan's reaction. What did the Nathan say? Verse 3. Whatever you have in mind, king, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. You know, Nathan the prophet did not inquire of the Lord, but immediately gave his blessing to David and affirmed the king's vision for God's temple. I love this because I'm not the only one, only impetuous pastor. Even prophet Nathan was a presumptuous and susceptible to his uh, holy ambition or holy desire. So Nathan jumped on the David's bandwagon. Great, David! My goodness! You, you and I, we're the first one who will build a you know, temple for God. Yeah, hallelujah, go for it. You know, I see kind of myself in there. If any one of you comes to me and says, Pastor Paul, I want to build a forest, physical building. I want to donate $10 million. That's what I'm going to say. The Lord is with you. Go ahead. You know, go ahead. You know. Surely the God is with us. But we have to be, again, careful that, uh, especially the house churches who are multiplying. We have two house churches. Uh, one is all now launching a new multiplication this Friday, coming Friday, right? And the other one is uh, now praying about it. 
Let me tell you, when you do good things, or good things are, you know, happening, be careful. Our adversary, Satan, is so cunning, he can judo our good intention into a disaster. He can turn the things upside down. Thankfully, God intervened in the visionary project of David and Nathan. Look at the verse 4. But, that means contrast, but, red light, that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Look at when the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Night. That night. Why night? Night means when Nathan and his excitement and euphoria calmed down and he could finally hear God's word. We must notice an important fact here that what we are about to hear from Nathan, uh, I mean from God through Nathan, this is the longest word of God since God appeared to Moses 400 years ago. So, you know, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 to 16, this is a, very, this is a lengthy, lengthy revelation since God spoke to Moses. So God told Moses, I mean the, uh, Nathan, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I move with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people that why have you not built a house of a cedar? What was God saying here? God was not rejoicing over David's vision for him. God was revising it. God was revising it, actually rejecting it. You know, I think a parents understand God's reply better. When do usually parents reply to their children with a question? You know? When do usually parents reply to their children, the first sentence is a question. That's usually when they're correcting them. You know? Why didn't you call? Why didn't I buy you a smartphone? Why am I paying? You know, those is usually you know, correction. And here, we are witnessing, in God's revision, we are witnessing rare glory of God. Rare glory of God. Here we see the difference between Yahweh and all other gods in the world. All other gods in this world were man-made, made in the man's image and man's imagination and uh, human conventions. Just like the human beings, they like a luxurious dwellings. For instance, you know, this week, actually, I read uh, some, I mean, I, you know, preparing this message, I read about the Egyptian king in the, you know, second millennium before Christ, who was rewarded by his God for building his temple. In the stone inscription, this Egyptian, you know, uh, uh, pharaoh declared how much his God blessed him, and all his military conquests were simply the divine reward. By the way, temple and then the uh, monarchy, the marriage of uh, religion and politics has been the most dangerous, most dangerous hegemony in human history. Anytime religion and polity come together, not many good things come out of it. It's really, you know, for instance, Romans did an emperor worship, right? They're making of their Caesar as a top god. 
to rule the rest of the Roman Empire. Japanese, do you know how Japan modernized such a quick period of time during the Meiji reform in 1850s? Through the state's Shintoism. Japanese used to have a, there's a Shinto shrine there, or everybody's house, there's a Shinto shrine for the ancestor. All of a sudden, state legalized it and made a nationalized it, making emperor as a son of a sun goddess. So emperor's word is not just a human leader's word, it's a word of God. And that's how Japanese, they centralized. Ancient Near Eastern kings built an extravagant residency for their deities at the highest points of a royal city, that would reflect not only splendor and majesty of God, through that they are flexing their muscles. And biblical example of that is Herod the Great. You know, Herod the Great is an Edomite. He's not a Jew. But he, when he became a king of Israel, how, what did he do? He rebuilt the temple of Solomon. Some scholars think that Herod's temple was a much bigger and more grandeur than Solomon's temple. It, it lasts more than 50 years beyond his lifetime. Why? Using religion to control people and exercise his political power. America right now, we are not far from that. There are some politicians trying to cajole well-meaning, innocent evangelicals with their political cause. I'm telling you, don't buy culture war. We are in spiritual war. America is not a battlefield. It's a mission field. We are here to share the gospel and expand the kingdom of God. We are not here to restore the, the you know, traditional American, whatever even family values. We are here to bring up the God's values and God's children and welcoming everyone. Today, in this God's rejection, God simply said this, my temple is, guess what? It's not like a man-made temple. I never complained about it. I don't need it. You know why? Because my temple is not a building but people. Wherever my people are, that's my temple. That's where my dwelling place. And have you heard me complaining? Never. Do you know our God is a nomadic God? Our God is, you know, this morning, after the early morning service, you know, the early Zoom service, easy service, after that we share. And one of the persons, actually, Julie E, said, Pastor Paul, one point that I get from today's message was that we are serving, serving humble, nomadic God. And I said, Julie, you're just one sentence, bless me. That's just, that sums up. You're right. The God we serve is a humble, nomadic God. Because his people are moving around. There's a one Bible passage always, you know, uh, comforts me and humbles me. That's Ezekiel chapter 10. And then let me read quickly. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple of Jerusalem, start over cherubim, while I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground as they went. The wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. 
and the glory of God of Israel was above them. Where the glory of God departing, according to Ezekiel chapter 10, from Jerusalem temple. Why escape? Why was God was going to escape? Why is the Shekinah glory of God was going to east? You know why? Those of you know the Bible a little bit? Because that's where people of God were there at the time. They were in Babylon as exiles and POWs. And Babylon was the east of Israel. That means God went to exile with his people. Yes. Our God is a nomadic, humble, faithful, shepherding God. You know, God's temple is not building. Again, it's a people. This is a very rare, unique character of our God. He's a dwelling place. It's not a fancy building, but faithful people of God. I want to say, you know where God wants to dwell? My heart and your heart in our heart and our community. So when two or three gather together, Jesus said, I'll make that place a temple. I will be there. Wherever Jesus is, that's the temple of God. Isn't that amazing? My heart, this wretched heart, can be a temple of God. You know, John 1, 14, later, Apostle John picked this and explained. The word became a flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, Shekinah glory again, glory of one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally, made his dwelling among us means a pitched a tent. God pitched a tent. In what way? By become, taking a human flesh. Word became a flesh. In Greek text, is a logos and sarke. And uh, a theologian said, here you see the cosmic scope of a God's incarnating love. By that he means this. Logos is a, the creating principle, I mean, it's, it's the, the reigning principle that create and sustain the universe. Two Greeks, Logos is the one behind the physical, you know, universe. Logos. What about Sarke? Greek has a two words for the, you know, body. One is Soma, psychosomatic. Soma is actually a positive word. Whereas a Sarke is a very pejorative negative, inferior word for the body. It's like a meat. You know, incarnation. Incarnation. You know, Spanish, carne means, a, you know, flesh or meat. Logos, the creating divine principle. And then meat. This is an entire cosmos. In between, it's an entire cosmos. That's a how much God loves us. To be with us. God breached the entire universe. That is our wholly different real God who wants to make my heart his dwelling place. Amen? Let me move on quickly. After rejecting and correcting David's proposal, God reveals his own proposal and vision for David. Now look at the verse 8. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and tending the flock, appointing to you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies. God reminded of David of his personal care and faithfulness to David in the past. Here, 
in the Hebrew text is uh, much emphatic and clear. God said, I took you, I appointed you, I was with you, I kind of cut off all your enemies. I, you, I, you, I, you, I, you. God led David graciously in the past. And then God said, I'll do more than that. And then verse 9, uh, verse 10, God said, now I will make your name great. When was the last time I heard that a God said, I'll make uh, your, your name great? Do you, do you remember something here? Whom did God promise this? This is a language of uh, God's covenant with Abraham. That's what God promised to Abraham. Look at the Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name, what? Great. And you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God told Abraham, I will make your name great. And today, God repeats and advance that promise to David. This is one commentator said, David is a central human figure in the Bible. He's a crucial link between Abraham and Jesus. David's place in the unfolding story of the Bible is a decisive step in God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. We only understand David in the light of that promise. God made his promise to Abraham. He spelled that promise out more fully to David. When we see God's promise to David fulfilled in Jesus, we see how Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. And that's why in the first sentence in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, present Jesus says what? The son of David, son of Abraham. Genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Son of David, son of Abraham. And then God gives, a, you know, uh, God continues to give a two blessings for David. And verse 11 God said this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And your own flesh and blood and I will establish the kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a wild-wielded man, with a flogging inflicted by human hands. But, actually, in other translations, nevertheless, my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from, uh, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Two key words in God's promise are repeated. That, that has a repetition. That is a house and forever. House and forever. House was, appears in verse 11, 13, and 16. Forever, verse 13, and twice in verse 16. You know, God's revelation to David is this. David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm the one who's going to build a house for you. I'm the one who's going to bless you. You know, one uh, generous Christian businessman once you know, told me that Every time he gives something to God, God gives him much more. So his confession is this. His testimony is this. He cannot outgive God. No one outgives God. 
The more I give to God, the more I receive from Him. God always outgives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the two things about, you know, David's, you know, house, that means the dynasty, is this. Two things, two, two promises. One is it will last forever. Everlasting, right? Forever, three times. It will be not temporal dynasty, it's an everlasting dynasty. And then another one is unconditional. Unconditional. That's why God said, you know, verse 15, that uh, nevertheless my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. And the Walter Brueggemann, he made uh, this famous uh, 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 comment on this. So let me read. I judge this oracle with his unconditional promise to David to be most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. But it is not the whole of Old Testament faith. The core statement of a royal faith is a bold departure from conditional character of the mosaic if. Here instead of if, nevertheless or but, that is presented in this promise in the very heart of God. You know, when God made, you know, when God made a covenant with Moses, what did God say? If Israelites obey my commands, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'm going to kick you out of promised land, right? But when it came to David, God said, even if he misbehaved, I will not leave him. I will correct him and I will use him. This promise of God to David is called the Davidic Covenant. And the Davidic Covenant is none other than God's promise of a Messiah in the line of David and ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. Now, I want to close my message with this one. Who is a son of David? There are three sons of David here. One, Solomon. And he's the one who built the temple later. The other one, this, the, the son of God, the second son of God is what? Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And, and there's a third one. Guess who, who is the third one? Jesus Christ. Open, his, open the heart of God for us through his sacrifice on the cross. Holy of a holy is a wide open Anyone can come in and become a sons and daughters of God. So who is the third son of David? That's me. That's you. I don't know about you, but have you felt sometimes, just even momentarily, that you're the luckiest person in the world? You know, I walk a lot these days during the pandemic, especially nighttime when weather is cold. I walk. And sometimes I look at the sky and see the stars and say, that's not a cosmic accident. That wasn't a Big Bang made it. Maybe Big Bang was the process, but it was God who put all these stars up there. I feel I am the luckiest guy in the universe. I am the richest person in the universe. I pity Bill Gates. My riches is a continue to grow. Angels going to, you know, uh, uh, they were going to, you know, they will be jealous. You know? Actually, they're going to worship and serve me because I'm a children of, you know, child of God. 
Have you, if you really know who your Savior is and the, what sacrifice he made for you, you realize that you, know, you are the luckiest person just as you are. Without anything in this world, you are the luckiest person. You are the richest person. Your future is brighter than anything else. Seriously. So my last word to all the young people and even old people here is this. St. Augustine said one of his uh, homily sermons on the John chapter 4 said this. Love God. Do whatever you will. For the soul trained in the love to God will do nothing to offend God who is beloved. When you know this incredible love of God, you will have this desire to love him. And with that, the restless gratitude, do whatever. It doesn't matter what you major in college. It doesn't matter you change you know, your majors to so many times, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't graduate from college. It doesn't matter. As long as you know this love of God in your heart and you are restless. Do whatever. And God will bless and use you. Amen. Let's pray.